Folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Monday, June the 7th, 2021. This is episode 2887 of the Survival Podcast. And today's show is called Producing at Least Some of Your Food for Everyone. And I'm going to say... Almost everyone. There's going to be some things I guess you could do even in a small apartment with maybe a patio. This is really for anybody, though, when I, when I came up with this list of 10 things you can do, that if you, have a, if you have a yard the size of an average living room, just that much land, you can do most of this. If you have a, a yard the size of the average yard of the average American quote-unquote starter home, You can do everything, and you probably can even do the bonus 11th thing, at least on some level or layer. And I wanted today's show to do a few things. One, this morning, the Miyagi Mornings episode, for those of you that do check out the video, uh, was about not letting I'm young and broke be an excuse for not homesteading or, frankly, for anything. For anything. like It's the worst excuse you can use because it is absolutely guaranteed to work and what it's really doing which is provide you with an out so that you don't go out and try to actually do the thing that you say that you want to do it's to make you comfortable in your misery that's what that excuse is for so i kind of wanted this to go with that because i'm going to give you some things to do here and most of them are very very inexpensive and some of them would even be free in all reality and all of them should produce more than they cost over time. And I, when I say over time, I don't mean over 10 years. I mean over a season or two maximum. They should more than pay for themselves, right? Um, I also kind of wanted to give you a simple show, kind of a throwback show in a way, back like you know, 2011, 2010, 2008 or 9 even. Back when I first started the show, some of the most popular shows were simple shows. Here's 10 plants you can grow or 10 things you can do and things like that. And people really loved them. And I think that's because they give you things to do. I know that sounds crazy, but yeah, people actually like to be able to come away with something and go, I learned at least something. This is what I try to do with every episode, right? This is what I try to do with every I want you to learn something, figure out something you can do, and laugh at least once. If I can get that done every episode, then in general, people tend to keep coming back. Uh, so I, I wanted to have kind of one of those simple shows like that. Uh, and I wanted it to link into today's Miyagi. Of course, that'll be on the recap episode on Friday if you don't listen to the or watch the individual videos. Um, and then the other thing is I just wanted to get people thinking more and more about producing some of your own food. Because I think it's going to become increasingly, increasingly important. And I wanted to kind of drive home how easy it really is. How many things people think they need to be able to do the things that our grandparents and, and, and what have you did all the time without even a second thought. That, 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 in fact, you know, I'm going to tell you, with one or two exceptions, most of what I'm going to tell you to do today, a hundred years ago, everybody just did it. And I say everybody, I mean most people. I actually don't like the term everybody. Everybody's talking about, well, I'm not, so clearly everybody's not. That's why I, I, I roll my eyes with that at least a few times a week. 
everybody wants to know. I don't give a shit. So every, you know, most people, most people in America did these things. And most people around the world still do one way or another if they can uh, or if they're aware that it's possible. And that's because food is this common thing that links all of us together. That's why one of the things that we always tend to do when someone visits us is have a meal together. Because we're both both sides, both parties are going to have to eat anyway, and it's a very human act. It's a very it's actually a very intimate act to share a meal with somebody. We had a quote of the day about that recently. So, um I, I think that it's it's really kind of that universal topic. And if you think about prepping, one of your cornerstone needs is food. And usually the person that can, if, per, if a person can get food and water, right, if they can get those two things handled, they can usually figure everything else out. They really can. All right, so before we get into that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day today. Sponsor day number one is Western Botanicals. Hey, we're going to talk about herbs a little bit today, um, and with good reason. For both culinary purposes and medicinal purposes, herbs are one of God's great gifts to humanity, in my opinion. But when it comes to this world of herbalism, when you start dealing with buying product from companies, there's a lot of snake oil. There's a lot of false claims. There's a lot of garbage out there. When I found Western Botanicals and they wanted to sponsor the show, I was immediately on board with doing it because I realized right out of the gate we had real people that really cared about you working at Western Botanicals. And they cared enough to make sure that all their products were either organically grown or wildcrafted when it comes to herbs and the herbs that go into their preparations. And they just wouldn't lie to you. And that meant so much to me. So check them out today at westernbotanicals.com. Next up today, Bulk Ammo. Bulk Ammo is your definitive source to get ammo in bulk. It's crazy. They say bulk ammo, and then you go there, and what they have for you is bulk ammo. All the common calibers, some of the not-so-common Most of it is in stock now. There's been some shortages lately, but mo they got a lot of stuff in stock. Uh, in the past month, it hadn't been in stock. Now, I said that it'll be damn near vacated by the time you guys get over there today or something. Um, but check them out, bulkammo.com. The, the, the thing that's always blown me about, away about them from the very beginning was how quick you get your ammo. It, it's crazy. It's like you, you order it, and then like a day or two later, it's there. Um, it's definitely, in my opinion, quicker than going to the store because I got to figure out when I'm going to go to the store. Then I got to go to the store. Then I got to look at the empty shelf. I wish I knew it was empty before I went to the store. And then somebody comes up and asks me if they can help me, and I think, no, you probably can't. No, it's just a much better experience. Go to bulkammo.com. All right, with that, let's go ahead and uh, start digging into this. I wanted to start out with a quote of the day for you that would fit today's episode really well. Uh, this is by Paul Prudhomme, and I, of course, have uh, talked about Paul before. He was a, a TV chef when that was a rare thing. There wasn't a lot of TV chefs back in the day. This is this is back when Jack Spirico was uh, knee-high to a grasshopper time frame. This is when, if you were going to watch a cooking show on TV, it was either going to be uh, the Cajun chef, Justin Wilson, Chef Paul Prudhomme, or uh, Julia Child. That was about it. That was about all you got, and it was on PBS. And if it wasn't one of those, you, it wasn't a cooking show. wasn't on there. Well, he said this, and he said this in, in many ways, many times uh, over the years running his cooking show. You don't need a silver fork to eat good food. Meaning that the food that you eat 
can be amazing food, and it doesn't have to be expensive. You don't have to be wealthy to be able to eat like you're wealthy. And that was a big focus of his show was, here's how to take these everyday items that everybody's already using anyway and use technique, order, recipe, seasonings. And he was, it's, why I always, it's why I probably today still cook so much from the concept of technique. Always he was big on the technique. Always the technique was more important than the ingredients. Because if you had to substitute an ingredient, you could probably figure out something that would work. But if you got the technique wrong, You know, if you take a steak and you throw it in a pan with a quarter-inch oil in it, it is not going to brown. I know you think it will, but it won't. And if you throw a wet steak in a pan, it will never sear the way it will as if you get it good and dry, give it a little salt first, pull some of the moisture out of it, and really get it good and dry. Get that pan searing hot, very, very light coat of fat, and sear that steak off. Like that is, you can't change that. I might give you a recipe and say it's really good to cook a steak this way in a pan and do ribeye, and you might use a cut like New York Strip, and it might still be amazing, but you can't get that technique wrong. Likewise, Chef Paul was big on cooking from the garden, cooking from the backyard, cooking from the field, hunting and fishing and foraging, and realizing that some of the best food in the world came from those things. And that's why I thought it would really work out for today. So like I said, um, I really wanted to give you a show today that digs into this subject, but I also kind of wanted to solve a problem that a lot of people seem seem to have to me, and it's I don't think it can really do much for myself because I don't have a lot of land. And I didn't want to just do another show on like small space gardening or something like that. What also made me think of this is, you know, I listen to and watch a lot of videos uh, from just about everybody in this space. Well-known names, lesser-known names, people you never heard of, but I just like what they're doing. People with an interesting YouTube channel. Uh, and, and huge, you know, well-known people like Jeff Lawton, who have the good fortune to, to work with on TSP as part of the expert council, and Nick Ferguson, uh, Joel Salat, and I mean names like that, right? And I always hear them sooner or later say, if you listen to them long enough, and quite frequently hear them say things like, you know, just get started and grow some of your own food, and no matter what it is, no matter how small it seems. And then they'll say something like, even if it's just some herbs in a windowsill. And don't get me wrong, I think if you can grow some herbs in a windowsill and that's what you can do, then that's great. But I just don't think it really takes people to the point of where they start to realize, like, hey, you know, three, four, five, maybe even seven days a week, something I'm eating, I'm producing. And I think there's there's a point where if most days, so remember we had the discussion about what most means in a show last week, most simply means more than half. If four out of seven days a week, at least one meal that you're eating has something in it that you produced, it's a switch. It changes things in your mind. You start to realize how much power there is in it. And I wanted to kind of head you off in that direction today. And I think a lot of times to figure out where we're going and where we need to be going, it's a good idea to look at the past. So let's just talk about for a minute how not that long ago most people did this. And I said 100 years ago in the intro, but the truth is, 
If I go back to like the mid-80s, when I was a teenager living in Pennsylvania with my grandparents, we grew so much food that by the end of the season, my grandmother would make up grocery bags and write different families' names on them, and they were like, you know, the, Dutch, uh, the, the Katchmers and the Depskys and stuff like that. And these were families who had gotten older, and they really weren't doing and their their kids left, and they really weren't growing their own garden anymore. And so my grandmother was like, we have so much, we should give that away. And I used to, you know, there was a good five families that I would take at least a couple grocery bags of food to uh, a week for the last few weeks of the season when everything was just in total abundance. And, like, she's like, I don't want to can anymore. I don't want to make any more pickles. I don't want to make any more chow-chow. And our garden, you know, it was sizable, but it wasn't huge. It wasn't a farm. Now, just kind of thinking back in my head, it was like eight rows, and I bet they were 25 foot long and three and a half, four foot wide at the most. They're probably closer to like three foot wide. And then I'd put in a couple bigger ones down at the bottom to grow some sweet corn and stuff like that. And we had so much from that. And we would have to, at that point, get very serious about getting as much harvested and preserved as possible. Because, you know, in Pennsylvania, you're talking like going into September is this time of year because your first good freeze will probably come sometime in early October and, and whatever's out there except for like cabbages and broccoli is dead. So you wanted to get it done because the other thing that was happening, you know, first week of uh, September, you got dove season. So now you're bringing doves in. And then the fall fishing really would kick in with the smallmouth. So now we're bringing filet home. And then you know, then you get into small game season, you get into archery for deer season. So the whole thing was shifting. And then we were going to bring all that meat in, and then we were going to have our dead of winter when there wouldn't really be much other than maybe doing some trapping. And so that was integrated into our lives. And when I moved away from that, when I was in the Army, it, it didn't strike me as odd to be in the army and go to the chow hall every day to eat or eat an MRE in the field. It seemed, that seemed perfectly normal to me. It really did. That seemed per because you're in the army. Of course, you don't have time to be growing no damn garden. You're in the army. That made sense. When I got out of the army and I went home for a little bit, took a walk on the Appalachian Trail and finally moved down to Texas, I ended up living in an apartment with a roommate. And we really had no space to do anything. And I was in that stage of my life where you're pretty much going to bars and chasing girls. So while I didn't grow a lot of my own food at that point, I knew that as soon as I had the opportunity again, I would. And I started looking around at houses and things like that and realizing like just how many people really lived in Dallas-Fort Worth was insane. And how even though these yards were small, there was a lot of space And it really did strike me as odd, and this would have been about 1993, that there were no gardens. I mean, I literally, I would just, you know, drive around, you could see in backyards and stuff, and it just like, what, wait a minute, like nobody has a garden. And then when you did see a garden, it was like, wow, look, that guy has a garden. And I just kind of would wonder to myself, why don't these people 
understand the resource outside their back door? Why don't they get how valuable this is? And when I talk to people about it, they'd say it was too hard, they didn't have enough space, they didn't know how, and I'm like, you know, I don't have I don't have the money to put a garden in, and I'm like, you know, they don't have to be these ra- and I even I really didn't even know what a raised bed was from a standpoint of like like, you know, using wood to build a bed. That just wasn't something we did. That was a material that would have cost way too much money. We just dug garden beds, improved the soil, and grew stuff. Like, you know, you can just dig a bed and then plant stuff in it, and it'll grow. And it was really, really strange to me. And it, it isn't that long ago that it would have been strange to just about anybody to see miles and miles and miles of houses with perfectly good yards and not growing any food. And I think this is really important right now because I do think we're going to continue to see shortages. Back at the beginning of this year, I told you there would be shortages. Now everybody's like, oh, wow, there's shortages. In fact, I've heard people use the term the everything shortage. Uh, I talked about that recently. I said, you know, the thing about the everything shortages is not everything at the same time. It's this is short, then that's short, but sooner or later, everything is in short supply. You know, and it, they, they cycle and flow. Well, this is going to be more and more the case with food. We haven't even really begun to feel the pinch of the bolted-in shortage in America today within the grain crops, the staple grain crops of, like, specifically soybeans. And I know a lot of people just feel like, well, I don't eat soybeans. This isn't really a problem for me. Most of what you eat either has soy in it Or if you're heavy into meat, it was fed soy. Soy is one of the staple feed crops fed to livestock in our country. And I know a lot of you have made the move. You're eating pastured food and and grass-fed and all. That's great. But that still doesn't make the problem not affect you at all because it puts more pressure on the entire meat supply. If if it's not affecting grass-fed as much, well, then people that normally don't buy grass-fed will buy grass-fed when they can't get what they want. It's driving up the cost of everything. It's putting the pressure on restaurants who don't want to raise prices, yet they can't afford the cost increases. Food shortages are happening right now. They're right in front of you. You can't see it unless you're broke. If you don't have any money, you can see it because it really hurts you that food costs more. If you don't really care that that package of steak was two bucks more or three bucks more this week, then you probably don't notice it as much yet. This stuff's not going up in price just because no reason at all. And contrary to what everybody wants to blame as far as money printing, that's not the only cause of it either. If people weren't buying it um, at, at rates that exceeded the supply, it wouldn't go up. This is a supply and demand issue, and there's less supply. And I think that's only going to become more the case. And I I just really encourage everybody to think about this right now as we kind of have a breather. We're going into the end of COVID. We really are. I don't care how much the media tries to resurrect it. I don't care how much they try to scare you that the cold is making a comeback now. And, oh, my God, your child could get the cold. And I heard today that, well, the hospitalization rates among uh, young children is up for COVID. It's still minuscule. It's like 1.3 per 100,000 or something like that. Like, go piss off. But it doesn't mean that there won't ever be another pandemic. 
we may never see it. We may never see another pandemic in our lifetime, especially many of us who are older like I am. We may not see another one for 100 years. I mean, we had a pandemic in 1820, we had a pandemic in 1920, and we had a pandemic in 2020, and the stuff in between those really wasn't that big of a deal. But that doesn't mean it's going to be another 100 years before there is another one. Well, what's it going to look like? You know, I heard Rand Paul say something that should scare the piss out of people. What he said was, you know, they're doing this gain-of-function research with coronaviruses, And there are some viruses that they're doing this research with right now that would have a lethality rate more like 15% or even 20% rather than less than 1%. Did you see what just happened? Did you see? I hope, I mean, if you didn't, good, God bless you. You must have built such a resilient life that you just, the only reason you even know there was COVID is because Jack Spearco told you. Largely, my life was not affected by COVID. My life, really, I mean, other than I had to wear a mask on an airplane for a couple of plane trips I've taken during this period of time, my life has largely gone unchanged. Even when they said everybody had to wear a mask, most places, I just didn't do it. I just didn't do it. And you know what happened? Nothing. <laughs> But it doesn't mean that I don't understand what happened. What do you think... Now that you've experienced a pandemic, and I know it was mostly a scamdemic, but now that you've experienced the way that government and people react, what do you think it looks like if we get something with the hell with 15, 20%, a 5% death rate? A 5% death rate that's not isolated to the most at-risk people in our society. We actually get a gain of function, natural or man-made, within one of these zoonotic viruses that hits people across the board with a 5% death rate. Five out of 100 people that get it, whether they're 14 or 40 or 80, die. What does that look like? What does that look like? That's just one potential thing that could go wrong. What does a limited conflict with China look like? What is China saying, you know what, we don't want to, Shooting war with America. We'll bluster all that shit. But you know what? Maybe America just doesn't need these 20 things, and among them are antibiotics, until we get what we want from America. Like, we want to be able to take over Taiwan without being bombed for it. What does that look like? In every scenario I can come up with that's even a little bit worse than COVID, it has a marked increased effect on food, And let me tell you something, friends and neighbors. It's always the response to the disaster. I've been teaching this since day one of TSP. The response by people to the disaster is inevitably worse than the disaster itself. If people think something like one of these events is going on, having now been through COVID, what do you think the store shelves are going to look like? So producing your own food obviously addresses that. And we can't just go from zero to food production. Additionally, we need to do food production in a way that saves money so that we can invest money in food that we do have to buy still and in feed for our animals and things like that so that when one of these events occurs, because something will happen eventually again, that at least that initial complete and total freakout, we don't have to take part in it. And as someone who didn't take part in it, 
I have to tell you, it felt pretty good to not take part in the insanity. So with that in mind, here's some 10 simple things I think you can do to produce some of your own food and kind of lifestyle quality needs. Number one, I'm going to give you three herbs that I think everybody should grow. And the reason I think you should grow them is they're pretty, they smell good, they have multiple uses, and combined they make one of the best teas that you'll ever make. And they are uh, lemon balm, mint, and bee balm. Now, you've got two medicinals in there, and I'm not going to go into their medicinal use today because I've got a lot to cover. But if you hear the word balm in a herb, it is traditionally used medicinally. And there are also some medicinal uses for mint. And then there are things you can do with mint that maybe involve other medicinals. I don't have anything about comfrey today, believe it or not. Uh, but we're my, my, I'm just right now making some comfrey salve with my uh, grandson and granddaughter so that they can learn how to make medicine from the backyard. And when we cut up a bunch of comfrey last week, and it's still sitting in a little mini crock pot because it didn't no hurry to go nowhere, um, I had him cut up about a half of a mini crock pot, and it's like a one and a quarter uh, quart crock, crock pot, about half of it finally chopped up um, comfrey, and I just handed him a pair of scissors and let him do it. Well, while he was doing that, I took a few sprigs of mint and a few sprigs of lemon balm and pulled the leaves off them and tossed them in there. And then we discussed why. And the reason why is pretty simple. Comfrey salve doesn't smell real good. It kind of has a, I don't know, it's not a bad smell, but it's not a good smell. It's kind of like if you've ever been like, I need to take a sh you know, you, you, know if you, you know when you really worked hard and you stink and you sniff yourself and you're like, I smell bad. I better go get a shower. But I'm, that's, you know, that's the extreme. I'm talking about when you're like, I don't smell real bad, but I don't smell good neither. I better go take a bath. It kind of has that kind of gym sock type, like mild gym sock smell. Well, if you drop some mint and lemon balm into it, it that smell is stronger than this comfrey smell, and it, it's, it, 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 it adds something to it, and mint's cooling. Those three herbs, though, together make an amazing tea. And I think about how much tea and coffee people drink in America. And coffee and, and tea largely are really not highly suitable for cultivation in North America. You can grow tea. It just generally, it, it, it doesn't really produce the quality you're looking for in tea. That's why there is nobody producing tea in North America that I'm aware of commercially. Right? Because it just doesn't quite get the quality. And coffee, I mean, there's two little tiny spots, and then you got a, a, a Hawaii where you can do it. So if we can grow something that fills that niche in our lives and, and adds to our health, and it, it's, you know, I like my coffee, but to be honest with you, herbal tea is a hell of a lot better for you than coffee. Additionally, this is one of those unique blends of herbs that, really gives you what you need when you need it. What I'm saying is if you drink a cup or two of this tea in the morning, it does help you wake up. Not Maybe not with the quite stimulant effect that coffee does, but it does have a kind of a stimulating effect on your mental stimulation. But if you drink a cup of coffee 30 minutes before bed, generally you're not going to sleep well with that caffeine infusion. But if you drink this before bed, it helps you actually sleep. It's, it's a, an interesting thing. And I think you can expand your herbs from there, and I have some thoughts on other herbs in another step later. But the reason I like these three herbs is that it would be very easy for you to make plants out of them. It's basically pull, a, pull some leaves off a stem and stick it in some moist soil. 
And this would be one of those things that you could also make a little bit of a side income and maybe pick one other herb to add to it and four packs and sell four packs for like, I don't know, six bucks. So in your four pack, you'd have lemon balm, mint, uh, and bee balm, maybe spearmint, but just some other easy to grow thing and put it on next door. And you know, my four packs are six bucks, eight bucks, whatever. I mean, your biggest expense in this is going to be little four packs and they're dirt cheap. And if you can make, I don't know, 200 bucks a year off of that, that'll pay for almost everything else we're going to talk about except for the bonus item, at least to get started with it. And these are all things that if you get started with them, once they get rolling, they're profitable. So there is no cost anymore, right? It's just startup costs. So those three herbs, and I also think they are great for bringing in pollinators, and they they, they fit into landscaping beautifully. So you, when I say to plant them, I mean, especially you suburbanize, plant them in your landscaping. You're not going to have any Karens complaining about them. They won't even know what they are. Um, next, grow beans. This is something that I think that, like, when I was a kid, everywhere you looked, there was a dadgone bean hanging. Like, a lot of them never got harvested, and that was fine because you could harvest them at the end of the year as a dry bean. And specifically, I'm talking about pole beans. And, you know, back then it was all just basically green beans, green, green pole beans. Um, today, I like to grow three main types of trellising beans. You're plain old green beans, your pole beans, but I also love to grow runner beans, like scarlet runner and half runner, etc. They're a much flatter, bigger bean. Uh, the flowers are very attractive to hummingbirds. So they look nice, uh, and in some climates, they'll do maybe better for you than, than pole beans. And then your like your the Chinese red noodle, uh, asparagus bean, whatever, your, your Chinese long beans, like yard long beans. And you grow all three of those. And anywhere there's a place that something can climb on and it'll look good, Plant some beans. I'm not talking about building a garden. Maybe throw a little compost down, make a little till up a little soil, what have you. Plant some beans. And what you'll have once you do that is a continuous harvest for as long as your growing season is. Of a vegetable that most people like, that has a lot of nutrition, that's easy to store. Because your easiest way to store any kind of string bean, pole bean, whatever is cut it up in the sizes you want, blanch it, which means you know boil it or steam it for about two minutes, take it out of that into an ice water bath, put it on a cookie sheet, throw it in the freezer till it's frozen solid, then throw them in Ziploc bags and seal them up. And that way, if you do the flash freeze that way on a cookie sheet, they're not all stuck together in a clump. That means you can reach in the bag and take a handful out. But this, the reason I'm giving it to you today is the thing you can do to produce your own food is... Once you get into kind of prime season with that, you'll be able to walk around in your backyard and pick a variety of beans in five minutes and have a good-sized bowl full of them. You'll be able to cut them up, take a handful or two for dinner for that night, and do the flash-freeze thing with the other ones. You will have less than 10 to 15 minutes a week in work into this. And by the end of the season, if you have a standard size freezer, the problem you'll have is you won't have room for anything else. So if you have a second freezer, a chest freezer, a deep freezer, stand-up, whatever, you'll have a supply that will last like crazy for you. If you don't have that, you might have to get into canning or dehydrating. I don't really like dehydrating string beans. I just don't. If you don't have enough space to store it, then 
what you do is you pick what you need as you need it, let your beans go to dry, take the beans off once they're, because you want to you wanna continuously harvest to keep production up, and you can just throw them in like a, a burlap sack or a paper sack in their husks, and wait till you have a bunch, and then go through them and shell them, basically crumble the husks off them, and you end up with this great big pile of dry beans. Now, dry beans is not something I use much anymore, but that would be another way to do the same thing. Yeah, and, and many of you, no matter how much I preach keto and you know a very carnivore diet, you're going to eat things like that, so you might as well grow it. But beans on a trellis, every fence, front porch, back porch, anywhere there's something, that the mailbox, pole, whatever. And scarlet runners in areas that might attract the attention of your, home, your HOA Karens because they look like an ornamental, because technically they are. They just happen to produce a bean. They're just a beautiful plant. Uh, next up for you, grow a long, storable, easy-to-grow squash that's large. And my favorite one out of that is called Trombocino, and I'm going to spell that for you guys. It's T-R-O-M-B-O-N-C-I-N-O. T-R-O-M-B-O-N-C-I-N-O. And if you go on my YouTube channel or my Odyssey channel, you'll see videos of me with this squash, if you, if you just search for it within my channels. And you see how big this thing grows. I mean, I've grown some. You, can, you can't get one hand around the neck of them. And they're three, four foot long. And the beauty of the Trombocino squash is that entire neck is solid squash meat. There's the, the bottom bulb is where the seeds are, and only that bottom piece has seed. Now, once you cut into one of these, its shelf life goes to crap. It does not store good at all once you cut into it. It, however, stores fine frozen. Like most squashes, it's better to blanch before freezing, but, you know, it's, or most winter squashes, I should say, but it's not hard to do. And you don't really have to. It just, to me, seems to have a little bit better quality if you do. However, there's no reason to freeze it. And the reason I recommend it is as long as you have kind of a cool, dry space, which means like an air-conditioned room, it will store for months once it turns orange like a pumpkin, like a, like a winter squash. In the, in the short term, you can use smaller ones as a zucchini. As long as it's green, it tastes like zucchini. And I mean sometimes they get a couple, three foot long and they're still green, it tastes like zucchini. And again, this is a, a trellising vegetable, so you can anywhere that you would have a trellis, you can plant trombocino. And absolutely, you can and should plant beans and trombocino, where it makes sense for you anyway, together and trellis them together. You get a nitrogen uh, fixation from the beans. Squash and beans go together. You got two-thirds right there of the Indian Three Sisters Garden. Um, I'm not going to talk about corn today because I'm talking about small, easy, cheap, and fast, right? But, I mean... Any fast-growing, larger squash, winter squash, that's storable without refrigeration would be a great addition here. So if you didn't want trombocino, you could grow butternut, you could grow uh, like Amish neck, pumpkin, anything like that. Um, but, I mean, if you grow enough trombocino that you can save 20 of those things, I, I guarantee you, you're not gonna, most families aren't going to get through one a week. And it's a very nutritious vegetable. Next, learn four to six plants or things. I guess you should like, you know, fruits, plants, 
vegetation, mushrooms, four to six things that you can forage for locally. You know, uh, blackberry, blueberry, wild strawberry would be some of your fruits. Uh, in the Northeast, you've eaten something like wild ramps, which are basically like leeks or onions. Those are delicious. And there's, I mean, there, there's such a thing to some people. There's places where they have a ramp festival. Uh, fiddlehead fern. I mean, there's just so, miner's lettuce. There's so many things that we just don't realize are out there. They don't always have to necessarily be something that's high in caloric yield. Something that I, I get around here that I forage right out of my own backyard are wild garlic blossoms when the flowers come on. Those are just fantastic. They're delicious. I only get them for a few weeks a year, but you know we we do have them, and it's 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 amazing. Uh, black locust. Uh, the flowers of the 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 bean is no toxic. Do not no bad right. And I don't think you'd have a problem with eating black locust leaf because I don't think you would find it very palatable. But the flowers, the little white blossoms, the white blossoms on the black locust tree are delicious. They taste kind of like sweet, kind of like pea, and then gone. And I don't know of any way to preserve them. If anybody does, if anybody knows of like a traditional way of preserving those blossoms in some way for food purposes, it'd be great to know because I, I have so much black locust on my property, I produce way more of them than we can use. We just basically eat them in salads until they're gone every year. But that's another thing, like something that you can forge. In a lot of places, there's wild mulberry. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a wild thing for it to be a forageable thing. Throughout Dallas-Fort Worth area, on a lot of highways, office parks, and things like that, there's a ton of pecan. And people go out every year and just pick them up. And nobody cares. It's just it, it's, it's something, because the, the, the places where these things are growing, it's not seen as an asset. That's so they don't really plant them anymore, but there's, it was popular at one time, so there's so many of these old pecans and they're huge, beautiful trees, and of course they don't want to cut the tree down, but they really would prefer that the, 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 the falling nut mass wasn't there, because, you know, only in America do we, we so little value food that food laying on the ground is a problem instead of a solution. So that would be an example of something that is available that you can harvest. It's not really wild, but it might as well be. And, and, and so find things that you can locally harvest. Mushrooms. Um, there is some limited mushroom availability in my area, but it's very limited. I so miss the northeast woods. Um, Ramshead mushrooms are matakis. Oh, my God. And, and morals and even the puffball mushrooms. There's some, of, some, of, some of the puffball are incredibly good. Now, mushrooms, you can kill yourself. You can make yourself really sick. You can trip yourself out. You do not mess with a mushroom unless you know exactly what you're doing. But there are quite a few edible mushrooms that don't look like anything else. And, you know, you can probably find some, but a lot of old-timers and all right now are looking to hand over this knowledge of foraging that they're, they're looking for people to teach, even if they don't know it. Like, they're not actively seeking, but, like, there's just a thing in them that makes them feel like, man, I'm going to die and no one's going to know how to do this anymore. So they get excited when people want to learn. And then there's little things that we can use that, again, they're not even really maybe huge caloric yield. But, like, I learned about a plant on my own property a few years ago at a spring workshop from a student, and it's called pepperweed. And it <clears throat> grows in like these, it looks like almost like a grain, a grass with a, gr a very small grain head on it, but they're really little flowers. 
and you just pull them off, and they have a very peppery, they're very similar like watercress or nasturtium flavor, but it dries well, and you can use it as a pepper substitute. And I think it was called poor man's pepper at one time. And it's really delicious. Like So find four to six minimum things you can forage. Next, find a place near your home where you don't have to take a whole day off or anything, where you can go after work or half a day Saturday or whatever, where you can fish. And you can catch something edible in the world of fish. And it, that doesn't mean it needs to be striped bass or, or you know giant bull uh, blue cats or something. It can be bullhead cats, panfish, or whatever. Find something that you and your family will eat that you can catch. Now, I know some people can't eat fish because they're allergic to it, just don't care for fish. You can skip this one if, if that's you. Most people, what I have found, though, that say they don't like fish, you just haven't had it prepared properly. Or people tell me something like, you know, bullhead catfish tastes like mud. No, it doesn't. When when I make a few of the bullheads up and I do the shucking, which is where basically you can look up shuck a bullhead on YouTube and you'll see how to do it. But it, you take this fish that's kind of difficult to clean and you take it from taking a couple minutes to get a couple little bitty fillets off it to taking about 30 seconds for it to be done. And you end up with this like whole fish with no skin on it. It's still on the bone though. But the way they're built, they just, when you cook it, it just comes off and you just throw the bones away. When I make those, occasionally if I feel like cheating a little bit, I will bread them. And I'll fry them whole like that. I'll put little slits in them because there's a lot of fat in catfish and that lets that fat come out. And I'll pan fry them. And my wife is, has, I'd say, a, a high standard for fish. You know, I'll make five, four or five of them each for us. And she always, you know, never takes everything the first time. So I'll have it sit on a little towel to drain and she'll go take three of her four or four of her five. And I get all mine. And we sit down on the couch and we're eating them. And I'll always say, are, are you going to eat that last one? And she'll always say, yes. <laughs> Quite assertively. If my wife says they're good, they're good. In fact, they're fantastic. And there's almost anywhere you live, unless you live smack in the middle of the desert, there's somewhere within 30 to 40 minutes that if you spend some time and learn the right time, the right technique, the right way, without spending money on a boat, without spending thousands of dollars on tackle, with just a little bit of gear, you can start bringing some fish home. And if you can do that, even let's say you have like four months a year where you can bring home enough fish every trip for three meals and you go twice a month, right? So that's what, six per trip over four months? I've lost all the numbers. I've, I've lost what I was saying there. It's significant. It's significant. And that's not really that hard to do. And, I mean, I knew a guy that lived up in Vermont. And his goal every summer was by fall when he switched over to hunting to have at least 100 pounds of fillets in his freezer. And he never failed to do it. He never failed to do it. And that would have been, it would have been, you know, yellow perch and bluegills and uh, bullhead cats, channel cats, things like that. And every, at 100 pounds, doing something he enjoyed, but 100 pounds of fish. What do you want to value fish at? $4 a pound, $5 a pound, $6 a pound? 
So somewhere between four and six hundred dollars at the lowest price you're going to pay, and most of the fish you're going to buy is not going to be as the quality of the fish that you can catch. So definitely add that. Then this will be the one that I'm going to say that most people can do, but not everybody can do. But I think that we all need to be raising some protein, and I think the easy button is chickens, right? But HOA Karens, local ordinances, size restrictions, uh, just, you know, where you're like, I don't want to do this here, uh, may, may not make this work for everyone. But if, you, if your family eats a lot of eggs, a small chicken flock is wonderful. You know, ducks, if you can make them work, what have you. But probably the easiest easy button to having meat and eggs is quail. And you can build quail housing for cheap using basically caging material, your metal caging materials, and a, a set of a small ring plier set. It does not have to be expensive. You do not have to go out spending hundreds and hundreds of dollars to buy purpose-made quail caging. If you want to and you can, God bless you, do it. I mean, it makes a lot of things easier. But by building your own, you can build it to any size or footprint that you want. And with quail, you know, I would say one of the things you need to look at is what are you going to use to catch poop? And you're going to throw some sort of carbon in there, wood chips or what have you, and figure out the best pan that will let you go the longest period of time without getting ridiculous, a week or two, before you have to change it out. And by building your own, you can build to that. So if you were to use something like, oh, I don't know, the 14-gallon or even the 20-gallon the, the, the uh, concrete mixing trays that I use for my ducks and I use for aquaponics, they're pretty deep when you start looking at it as far as catching quail poop and, and having carbon. You could build the cage to fit that dimension, and then you just have a place to slide that tub in. And what you can do is you put down, you know, fill it a third with wood chips, and after a few days it will start to have a bit of an un unfriendly smell. Just throw some more wood chips in it. Don't dump it yet. And keep doing that until you get it damn near full. And then go compost it. We'll save that for thoughts for later on. But now you've got a fertility yield, you've got an egg yield, and you've got a meat yield. And what I love about quail for this purpose is, Unless The only thing you'll miss is large size over easy eggs if you eat those a lot. When it comes to making scrambled eggs, using eggs in your cooking, whatever, you just use more eggs. They're extremely prolific. There's times where quail will double clutch in a day for you. So if you have 12 quail, you might get 18. You're know, not all going to do it, but you might get like 18 eggs sometimes. And you end up with about four to five quail eggs to a chicken egg, a large chicken egg. So it's, it's completely fine for, for egg usage. If you made somebody scrambled eggs and, and, and one of them was quail's eggs and one of them was chicken's eggs, they wouldn't know the difference unless you told them. I'm going to tell you right now. Uh, I guess if they knew and they tasted, they might be able to detect a difference, but they wouldn't be able to tell you which one is which. And it, it, it wouldn't be much. You'd have to, it'd be like being a sommelier of eggs or something for it. From a meat production standpoint, I can process a quail in 30 seconds without any tools. Basically, off goes the head, out comes the breast, out comes the, the leg quarters, and you're done. You can even separate your heart and your liver out if you want to. That'll take about 45 seconds of bird. you got to get that little bitty, uh, what is that, gallbladder off the liver, because that's no bueno. 
Um, man, and they're fantastic. They taste like chicken. They really do. They taste like chicken with a little bit of flavor behind it, right? So more like your, your farmyard chicken than your Pilgrim's Pride nasty chicken. If not quail or some other form of poultry, I think a rabbitry makes a lot of sense. And I think doing poultry and rabbitry, you have gone a ton long way toward um, a lot more self-sufficiency. What I like about rabbits over just about all poultry is it's much easier to grow food for rabbits than it is for most poultry, especially on a small scale. Because rabbits eat grass. Rabbits eat clover. Rabbits eat tons and tons of stuff. So something in that poultry range, and again, rabbits and quail are quiet, and I've known people that have done either or both in dead center smack dab Karen HOA you know, 101 small poster stamp lots. So that, that would be something I would say to add. And then I think it makes a lot of sense for just about anybody, especially in small scale, to build a small-scale hydroponic system. Now, this can be expensive, but it doesn't have to be. And I think sometimes people, they're, you know, like you go to a like an all-you-can-eat place and your eyes are bigger than your stomach and you end up with this huge plate of wasted food because they won't let you take it home in a box because it's an all-you-can-eat place, so that makes sense, right? When we start doing hydroponics, people want to, I want to grow 100 plants, 200 plants, 300 plants. Like Unless you're going commercial, this is ridiculous. I have a system at the front of my greenhouse. It's made from three sections of 10-foot, 4-inch pipe. Each one has 15 holes in it, and 14 are for growing. One is for managing the overflow. There are 3-inch holes and run 3-inch net cups. So each pipe can do 14 plants. I'm going to tell you right now that one, that 14 plants is enough for a salad every day for a family of four once you get rolling with it. Especially if you have a place to start kind of your next plants. Because you do cut and come again, cut and come again, cut and come again. Like, okay, that plant really needs to go be replaced. Boom, new one. And there's nothing about this that has to be expensive. You know, that can be run off like a 17-gallon Rubbermaid tub for your sump, a $30 or $40 pump and some net cups, and then whatever you want to use for media, and master blend hydroponics fertilizer. No lights, because you can do this outside. Now, if you want to do an indoor system, God bless you, go ahead. If some people, maybe it's the only way you can do it, fine. If you have a, a sunny fence, and like morning sun, afternoon shade would be even better for this, especially when I tell you what you're going to grow in it. Um that would be better because long-duration sun on the pipe in the late summer will melt your plants, man. It's just too hot. So, like, if you have that fence, it's, you know, it's going to be your, I guess it would be your, for most of your backyards, it would be kind of that western fence. So your sun comes up in the east, and it once it gets on the other side, it's not really hitting it as hard anymore. That would be a great place to do it. Uh, any place that you can put up just one pipe, and that's simple, just pump through the pipe, return to the sump ongoing with a pump, and that pump can be on a timer, an $8 timer, and it can probably run 15 minutes out every hour to be just fine. If it's, You might want to run it, what I would actually do is I would run it from once the sun really gets up until the sun's mostly down, I'd run it full time because that pump's cheap to run anyway, and I'd run it 15 minutes every hour through the night. And the timers I recommend, again, they're 8 bucks. They're made by a company called Century. They're so easy to use, even I can do it. I hate mechanical timers. 
When I found the century ones and other ones that work like them, I'm like, oh, why aren't they all like this? The ones with the little pins and crap in it? No. These you just push down. You want, you want it to run from 8 o'clock in the morning to 8 o'clock at night. You just push down. and They're like little push pins. You push them all down. And then you, whatever time it is, you turn the timer to that time plug it in. That's it. Done. You want to go 15 minutes out of every hour, you push every you know third pin or every fourth pin down. And it doesn't matter what time it is now because it's 15 minutes out of every hour. They're just, I've covered them at length. And yes, crap key works, but a simple sump pump return system is easier to maintain and it does work better, in my opinion. And it's easier to deal with on a maintenance standpoint. I can't get, you know, I've done whole shows on hydro, but I'm going to tell you if you took one piece four inch pipe, growing 14 plants and three inch net cups, what I would recommend that you grow is a mix of basil arugula, and a, two or three types of lettuce. And that's a great green base for your salad. And if you like other things, you can do it. But if you grew that alone, and this is after now doing hydro for two years, these are the crops that grow fast. They're expensive to buy at the quality we we're talking about producing. And you can, you, can, you can just get it going, man. You can get it going. You get one small little crack key-like setup it has, I don't know, four to six holes in it. Use that to start your plants. So that as you're taking plants out, you have plants that are at least half grown ready to drop in. You you can't keep up with it. I have three pipes. I originally was going to do strawberries with. That didn't work out real well for me. And now I end up feeding most of what it produces to the ducks. And even with that, there's times it just gets away from me. I went on vacation. I came back. The guy that was here, he did a great job. He did not cut anything off of it, though, and it was just like a wall of overgrown weeds. And I had to cut it just to the ground and start over. And still producing again really, really quick. Arugula and lettuce are great salvage. You had that basil in there for that kick. Then you got basil and do pesto and other things with it. it. It's so much food, and it doesn't have to be a piece of pipe. There's other ways you can do it. I don't care how you do it. I'm just telling you. A system that will grow you somewhere between 10 and 20 plants. If you're growing salad greens for a family, it's an insane amount of production. Why hydro over aquaponics? It's easier. It's faster. If you need more nutrient, you just add it. There are no fish to kill, only plants. And since this is an outdoor system, if you're in like upstate New York, when it starts freezing, you shut it off. You dump it out, and you don't grow anymore again until spring. If you want to move it inside, you want to go for season gardening, whatever, you can figure that out. But fast, quick, easy, anybody can do. You just grow during the time of the year that you can grow. And it amazes me that people are like, but, 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 but what about the time of the year I can't grow? Then you don't grow. That's the same way we run our gardens, isn't it, for most of us? It gets cold enough, we stop growing for the year. Put the, we put the bed to bed. We cover crop it or we throw a tarp over it so it doesn't become a weed nest or we mulch it or whatever and we wait till spring and we start growing again. Very simple. Next, I really, you know, I mentioned herbs at the beginning. I think it'd be a great idea. You grow those three herbs I talked about. They're not really in an herb garden. They're kind of just spread out through your landscaping. Have a dedicated herb garden area and grow herbs like chives, oregano, parsley, and things like that. Because now I can cook with herbs. I've got salad. I can add herbs to my salad. If I'm doing a baked potato, i got chives. I mean, there's just so, so much utility with this. 
So add, I mean, that kind of speaks for itself. Add somewhere in your landscape a simple herb garden. Oregano is one of those really great herbs to grow. It's expensive to buy fresh. It's so much better fresh than dried. And it's perennial to zone six at least. And if you heavily mulch, it's probably perennial further than that. I've got perennial uh, oregano now like eight years. Plants coming back every year. And this year we had temperatures below zero and it came back. It came back again. I, I thought I was going to lose it with going down below zero. It came back. I didn't even mulch it, and it came back. Um, now, I would also say, assuming that your yard is big enough, but even really small yards you can do this, plant a few fruit trees or bushes or cane fruits like blackberry or raspberry or something like that, just a few here and there. You don't have to turn the whole thing into a food forest. It's amazing what five canes of blackberry will produce with, with cultivated varieties. Or if you're in the northeast especially, or northwest as well, anywhere in the right kind of temperate climate, like a currant bush, a single currant bush. We, we had one in Pennsylvania. My grandmother made black currant jelly. It was delicious. And we had one bush. That was, a, that was, that was enough. I mean, that was flat out enough. I mean, I'd be making black currant meat out of it today if it was me, but I mean... There's so much gooseberry is another relatively compact plant. Um, gumi, which is basically like giant autumn olives. It's a big bush, but you can prune it small and it produces like crazy. There's a lot of options like that. So throw in some perennial woody shrubs or trees. You can look up Dave Wilson's backyard orcharding, especially if you have a little bit bigger of a yard where you plant four trees in one hole. Instead of doing a multigraph tree, it tends to work a lot better. There's a pruning technique for it. But, you know, three setups like that, and you've got 12 different fruits coming in from it. Uh, find the stuff that works good for your area. I mean, I've, it's taken me years to accept it, but you know what grows good here? Plums and pears. Plums, pears, and pecans. Everything else, it's okay. But plums and pears grow, so that's what I would, you know, focus on. If it was a small yard and I had to be more particular about what I had to do. Next, this is that's 10. Those ten things, and just go through them quick now. Grow the three herbs in your landscaping, lemon balm, mint, and bee balm. Grow beans, pole beans, and trellis beans wherever you can do it. Long-storing, easy, large squash like Trombocino. Uh, learn four to six plants you can forage locally. Find a place you can catch edible fish and go a couple times a month or more during the season. Uh, raise quail or other poultry and or rabbits. Uh, build a small hydro system. Grow basil, arugula, and a few different lettuce types. Uh, build a slightly more involved herb garden with herbs like chives, oregano, parsley, etc. Uh, I missed compost your waste. Okay, I'm glad I went back through that. Composting your waste, to me, is something that we should do to be socially responsible, eco eco ecologically responsible, and because we like money. Fertilizer is expensive. You make enough compost, you don't have to buy any or you buy a lot less fertilizer. And... Uh, Kind of my favorite way to compost for the urban home owner is simply rake up your leaves so you have some carbon. Maybe pick up leaves from some neighbors if you don't have a lot of leaves to rake up and keep those dry in like a garbage bag that you can loosely tie and kind of put off to the side. And get a like a tough made garbage can, like a 32 gallon, 40 gallon standard garbage can. Drill some holes on the top and bottom. Get yourself a piece of cheap, thin-walled, four-inch pot, put some holes in it, set that in the center of the garbage can, and just start filling up around that pipe. And fill that pipe up, and every time you bring your kitchen scraps and whatever out, 
either wood chips, leaves, something like that, something you can get for free, cheap, or for, you know, just by picking it up. So you have a carbon source. Almost everything that comes out of your kitchen in the world of compost, we're going to call it a green, a nitrogen. It's wet. It's not dry. And we need carbon and nitrogen to go together. So we keep a little bitty. Now, I do chickens and ducks do my composting for me. But if I was doing this, I would pretty much do the procedure the same as far as adding it. We keep a little, it's probably about a gallon thing on our kitchen countertop, and anything that's compostable goes in there. Coffee grinds, that would be the one thing that is a brown. Uh, all food scraps and stuff like that. Eggs, it's a weird thing. I can't explain it biochemically. I'm sure if you looked hard enough, you could find out. If you take an egg, you crack it in half, you throw the eggshells in a compost pile, unless it's a really hot compost pile, you dig that compost up later on, there's eggshells in there, look like nothing ever happened to them. You don't have to break them up or grind them up or nothing, but you take the eggshells after you crack the eggs and just crush them in your hand and throw them in there, they compost away. I don't understand it. It's just accept it, okay? Uh, I've had compost pile. There was a compost pile when I moved in here. It was huge. The, the prior homeowners composted uh, down to the center of the compost pile. It had to be years in there, whole eggshells. And as soon as I start crushing my eggshells in my compost, they're gone. So they can go in there too, but whatever your, whatever your container is you keep in your kitchen for your compost, when you dump that in the garbage can, compost system, and this is in the MSB, there's videos on how to build this system, just get your brown, whatever you have, your leaves or whatever, and throw a handful or two in with it. When you cut your grass, if you feel like it, rake up a little bit of greens, throw a layer of that in, and cover that layer of greens with, with, uh, with, with the brown. You don't have to do all of it. I wouldn't do all of it. Just kind of keep it going. When garbage can is full, you can start out building two or three of them right away or just make one, make another one, and start filling it up. Inevitably, about the t for most homeowners, about the time the second garbage can is full, the first one will be composted. And there's a really sophisticated technique using pipes called a bioreactor. Uh, Nick Ferguson is all on board about him. He did a, an expert council segment on him not too long ago. I'm probably going to try it at some point. However, it isn't really much different than what I just described, except what I'm doing is like the cake baking out of sequence over time. Like you just, you're adding, you're adding. It's not ideal. But for the homeowner that wants to make it easy and have a way to compost, it works fine. And if it, if you're producing enough waste that when you get your second one full, your first one's not done, Put a third one out. Get a third garbage can. These things are like $25, $30 bucks at Home Depot. Drill some holes in the top and bottom. Pipe in the center and fill it up. I guarantee you the first one will be done by the time the third one is full. And when the first one is done, dump it out. Put it somewhere, you know, tarp over it so you can use it as you need it. And start filling it up again. That's it. It's composting easy 101 for the homesteader. An uh, urban homesteader, small-scale homesteader. Now, my 11th bonus one. And I'm not going to go deep into this because I've done whole shows on it, but I really think adding some aquaculture is an incredible idea. And you can do kind of the Miyagi ponds that I've talked about, which is basically wood frame ponds with a pond liner drop down into them. I have built aquatic systems on galvanized steel stock tanks. They've worked fine. They're now almost eight years old. They don't have any leaks or any problems. No, the fish didn't die. Blah, 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 blah. However, I would use poly stock tanks 
before galvanized because they are going to last 100 years instead of 25. Okay? Um, and when I built my systems at the time, if it came to like the big round stock tanks, the only thing you could get in poly was like this blue that was just not pleasing to the eye at all. They now make them, and I've, they're actually more common, in a gray that looks great. And you can get an eight-foot round, two-foot deep one of them for like 300 bucks or something like that. They're lightweight, easy to move. You could set up two of those if you had the space, overflow one to the other, and grow a shit ton of fish in them. I am in love with the footprint of the DuPont that I'm doing the, growing the duck food in, 8 by 16. That's pretty large, but you can make it look very formal and very pretty. Mine is about 20 inches deep. That's minimum, okay? If I was trying to grow, like, a lot of fish in it or something like that, uh, or anything but bullheads, which I think is what we're going to be growing in it, it would be really marginal for our climate. Most of you do not have trouble digging a hole. Digging a hole is free. Digging a hole results in dirt that you can use for fill other places. So eight by, I would not try to build a Miyagi 8 by 16, you know, three foot high off the ground. It's a lot of water and a lot of pressure. You're going to get a lot of bowing. And you're probably going to get a failure. I think you've exceeded what, what the technology will do at that point. However, I wouldn't think twice about building one two foot tall. Two, two foot of water from the ground level. I don't think I would use 16 foot four buys on the 16 foot dimension, not two two eights like I did with mine to save money, because I only came up 11 inches from the ground level. So I would go with 16 foot boards, but two foot I don't think it'd be a problem. 20 inches definitely not. So around 20 inches I think it'd be 19 and three quarters if the math is right in my head. Um, I would do that, and the reason is. With fish, if you want to do a lot of fish, square footage is almost as important as gallons, if not more, because fish fight. So you can create a lot more edge that way, a lot more hiding places and things like that. And, you know, if you can dig down two foot, doing a three foot deep, 16 by eight would be really cheap because you don't need that much lumber. The money's in the liner at that point. You can go four foot total depth, three foot down if you have the time and the space and the inclination. And my God, the amount of fish you can grow in that. And if you start fishing, like I said, what you do is you just take all the fish that are legal but too small to be worth eating, bring them home and throw them in your pond. That's what I do. I don't buy fish for stocking. And, you know, if I want to right now, I can go out and throw a line in the water and pull a channel cat out that's two foot long and make fish tacos tonight or grilled catfish tonight, whatever I want to do. And so I really, and then you can start playing with some aquaponics with that and some other things that I won't get into, but that would be my bonus. And I would be more about the fish for this than the aquaponics components. I have determined that the advice I have given for years about you can't take a 4,000 gallon pond and do aquaponics with it is wrong. It is wrong. I don't think you'll have good luck with it the first season or two. As that pond matures and develops into a full ecosystem, yes, you can, because I did it, and it, the growth is beautiful. I also am doing it with the new pond I just talked about, the 8 by 16 and the growth is not beautiful, and it's very simplistic as to why. It's not mature. It's not a mature system yet. And I think so the larger ponds, you need time to develop all the biology and ecology in them. 
and then you absolutely can do some, especially, I was going to say lettuces and stuff like that, but right now I got tomatoes and, and going gangbusters in a little um, 14-gallon Rubbermaid, not Rubbermaid, um, the uh, Home Depot Lowe's you know, concrete mixing trays, one of those. Just beautiful growth. So I was wrong, and for once I'm happy to be wrong. All right, with that, we've wrapped things up. Hope you enjoyed it. If you if you take this approach, or even half of it, I think it'll shock you how much food you can put into your family from your own efforts. And like I said, I don't think it's that hard to actually eat something that you produced. Now, that don't mean feed yourself in full, but I mean, like, when you sit down at dinner, these two things or this thing came from the backyard, came from the backyard right? I don't think that's that hard to do. And once you get to where, like, that's true more days than it's not, it starts to become a thing. Well, what else can I do? And the, 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 that's, like, one of the most powerful things you can do here. I, get, I gave you things to do that are relatively easy and that anybody can do. And, you know, if you have a failure, it's not a big loss, and you'll figure it out, and you'll have success eventually. But when you start asking yourself, not what can I do, but what else can I do in this realm? You switch that mental computer on. Because when you say, what can I do? A lot of times what your mind hears is, I really can't do much. When you start saying, what else can I do? Since you else is in there, you already have a positive result. The mind is now challenged. The, the mental computer kicks into full speed. And it's amazing what you'll come up with if you'll give it a try. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up and remind you guys you can help support this show by doing your online shopping at where? tspaz.com. tspaz.com. T-S-P-A-Z. tspaz.com. If you check out tspaz.com, you can find all the items that I've reviewed over the years. If I don't own it, use it, and love it, I will not recommend that you spend your money on it. Today's item of the day will fit right for that simple hydroponics system that I talked about today. It's Master Blend uh, Hydroponics Fertilizer. You'll need a little scale to go with it to do your measurements, but other than that, it is fantastically easy to use. It's super, super simple to use, and it works, especially for the crops that I talked about today, your basils, your lettuces, Swiss chard, your leaf crops. It is dynamite. It is stupid cheap. And I don't care what anybody says, a little bit of fertilizer doesn't hurt nothing. Being fertilizer dependent is a problem. So when you get to where you need to do a water change, just put it on your perennials and go on with life, and nothing will be nothing will be roughed up for it. Um, this stuff got hard to get during the COVID shortage to where I had to come up with some other options because you just couldn't get it at all. It works fantastic. It's in stock now, and it as long as you keep it sealed, it will last for damn near ever. I don't remember which one of the three, but I know it's not. If the, the Epsom salts is not sealed up, it cakes, and it's not good. Um, and of the other two, I think it's the main master blend fertilizer. If you do not keep it sealed up, it not only becomes hydroscopic and takes moisture in, it does to the point where it starts to turn like leaking out yellow water, and it ruins it. So what I do with mine now, I put it in ball jars, and I label each component, and I seal the ball jars up and don't have any problems. And then when one of my ball jars is empty, I just go get another one off the shelf. And it comes out to pennies a gallon to make this stuff, grows a ton of food, and I have also it and all of my stuff for hydro and aquaponics 
in today's show notes as well. But the item of the day is released as always. And remember, you can also help support us by becoming a member of the Member Support Brigade. Just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more about that. With that, let's... uh, Let's go uh, with our song of the day today. We are in Sammy Hagar week, which we started last week because there's now four new shows a week and there's no music uh, released on Friday. So I started it last week so I could get all of the Sammy Hagar music. This song's called Winding Down. It's off one of his uh, recent albums. I think it's called Sammy Hagar and Friends or the Friends album or something like that where he has collaborators with him. Uh, This is not your typical Sammy Hagar sound uh, at all. This is very like retro blues in sound. And it talks about all the problems in the world, and it's like, well, the world is revving up, I'm winding down. And I'm like, that sounds to me like what Sammy says is, I'm going to go homestead and move off in the mountains and the hell with the world. But is it really? Because I really never heard Sammy say much like that before. So I went to see if there was a Song Facts article on it. Well, there isn't. There's one on a song called Winding Down by Clint Black, but it is not the same song at all. And there really wasn't nothing like that. There were no real interviews that I could find, like, you know, Rolling Stone or something, where he talked about the song. And I was checking for other versions of it on YouTube. See, is it even Sammy's song? Is it somebody else? It turns out it is a song he wrote. And it, I found a... A video where he tells the story behind it. I have a link in the show notes if you want to listen to it for yourself, but it's exactly what he said. He said basically he was sitting in his house, don't ever watch the news, turn the news on, all this shit's going on, and he's like, the hell with it, I'm out of here. He picked up his guitar, he wrote this song in one go, and he talked to some other people that are involved, and you can listen to it on the uh, uh, old blues singer called Taj Mahal, had some, some input on it as well. But when he wrote it, the first version of it, it wasn't punchy enough. It was too mellow, and he wanted it to have a little bit more heat, a little more anger. And so he kind of did a second pass at it, and that was it. And it was done. That's what it's about. It's about how I think most of us in this audience feel. The hell with this. I'm going to the woods. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Chill.
Yeah.